Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. February 15th uh, marked the anniversary of the 1964 death of Father Reginald uh, Giridoux Lagrange. Don't feel bad if the name doesn't ring a bell. Uh, As enormously influential as he was in the 20th century, uh, especially the first two-thirds of the 20th century, uh, he's largely been forgotten by popular Catholicism. Uh, We have the opportunity, though, to get to know uh, this remarkable man, my guest is uh, Dr. Matthew Minard. He's a Ruthenian Catholic, husband, father, serves as professor of philosophy and moral theology at the Byzantine Catholic Seminary of St. Cyril and Methodius in Pittsburgh. He's been published in Nova et uh, Vetera, the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly, the Review of Metaphysics, Homiletic and Pastoral Review, and he's been serving as a translator or editor for volumes published by Emmaus Academic, uh, he's also worked with Catholic University of America Press and Cluny Media. You can uh, follow his work at philosophicalcatholic.com. Recently, Emmaus Academic has published two volumes called On Divine Revelation by Father uh, Gary Jules Lagrange, and uh, the translator of that project was uh, Dr. Minard. Matthew, good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Al. And is is the... The second G in Garajou, is that hard or soft? Hard. It is hard. To slip, yeah, I was going to slip it in on you without <laughs> trying to point it out, but there we go. That's so, fine. Now, I've I always, mean, I've no, gone, don't say it like Englishmen. Okay. I've gone back and forth on that for a while, so I'm glad I have somebody who can settle the issue. Uh, let's, let's start off with a sketch of his life. Um, he really is a man of remarkable uh, influence, and uh, I'd like us to get a feel for what his, quote, career was like. Tell us a little bit about him. Sure. I'll try to take the short version. It's easy for uh, someone who does a lot of academic research on someone to get lost in the details. Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know who Father Reginald Garigou Lagrange uh, was, he was a Dominican friar who was born at the end of the last quarter of the 19th century, 1877. Matthew, let me and interrupt he, you for a yeah. moment, uh, just because mm-hmm. for some reason or other we're having, I know before we got went on the air that we had a good solid connection. For some reason uh-huh. it's broken down a bit and we're getting a problem. We're going to take a break and get back in touch with you, see if we can clean up oh, the sure. connection, okay? Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. Again, I'm with Dr. Matthew Minard. He is the translator of this really hefty two-volume work called On Divine Revelation, The Teaching of the Catholic Faith by Father Reginald Guérigou Lagrange. And it is a, uh, again, I, I can't say enough, as somebody who does a lot with uh, books, <laughs> written a few myself, but this is a masterpiece of uh theology. And it's amazing to me that this uh, man has been eclipsed by, uh, I don't know, later writers who I don't think hold a candle to him. We'll find out why. There's usually a reason for this kind of thing, why particular uh, great teachers, great scholars, great writers uh, pass from popularity. And that might tell us something, too, about the history of uh, modern Catholicism. So we'll be, again, getting, uh, Matthew will fill us in on the background of uh, uh, Father Reginald Garigou Lagrange. Matthew, you back with us? Yeah, let's try this now. How does it sound? (laughs) Sounds great. Are we better? We're better. 
Yeah. So okay. Take, yeah. Take us back to the beginning then. Yeah. So for those of your listeners who don't know who Father Garrigou Lagrange was, very high level. He was born in 1877. So the end of the 19th century, it's a period of Catholicism that a lot of people who lived through that that time in France uh, will have gone through um, the suppression of religious orders, for example, mm-hmm. in France. Um, it's the period after the First Vatican Council. And he's a young man during the modernist crisis, during Pope St. Pius XII's uh, papacy. He becomes a Dominican after a little bit of studies in uh, medicine, but he has a kind of spiritual reversion uh, and joins the Dominican order as a young man still. Um, and after a few years of teaching at his local province at their studium, you know, their seminary for mm-hmm. Dominican friars, uh, he was then brought to the pontifical uh College of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, we call it today, yes. in Rome, where he taught from 1909 until 1959. Um, wow. Basically, yeah, uninterruptedly. He taught uh, kind of a standard series of courses uh, on Revelation, which actually the book that we're going to talk about was based on, um, a course that became very famous in later years on spiritual theology. Uh, there's a two-volume there, so two book, uh, The Three Ages of the Interior Life, that came out of that spiritual theology course, but a lot of other things too. He spent 30 years actually primarily dedicated to spiritual theology and then metaphysics. He, he was originally going to be a philosophy professor. So there's a, a, a deep love of philosophy, even throughout his, his theology. Is he principally and a he, philosopher or yeah. a theologian? Well, he's principally a theologian, mm-hmm. uh, but he's a theologian whose, whose philosophical background comes through a lot. Okay. Um, yeah, it kind of marks his style mm-hmm. um, and sort of the things that he gets caught up in. Um, but then he also, I mean, he taught just a regular theology sequence of courses where they would go through St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae. It was just a normal thing at the Angelicum where sure. you would just sort of comment, you know, it'd be your course, you'd comment going through the text. Mm-hmm. And he influenced a lot of people over that that time, right? If you're teaching in Rome, you're going to have all sorts of Dominican friars and other people too uh, who come through the Angelicum. And then he published just an immense amount. His uh, biography is something like 50 or 60 pages um, long. Mm-hmm. So, wow. a lot of articles, yeah. Uh, and books. And he, so he, and he went through the, both world wars, uh, which must have yeah. been difficult in Europe. Correct. Yeah, he would have been, you know, too old to serve even by the time, you know, in World War One had broken out. Um, but he was in Rome during that. And then also as well during World War II. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how, was, how was he regarded? I mean, what was his reputation uh, like uh, during the ni- from 1909 to 1959, the 50 years he's teaching at the Angelicum? He's got to be teaching an extraordinary number of people, many of whom went on to, I imagine, great influence in the Church. Yeah, he, he's sort of known in two different ways. Um you know, Rome was a, a rather conservative place during that period of, of church history, especially after the modernist crisis. So as you move on into the 1930s and 40s, he becomes known as more and more of an old conservative. But truth be told, the the personal stories that you get from most of his students about his, his lecturing ability and style was that he was actually a, an incredibly captivating professor, mm-hmm. even in metaphysics. You know, which is rather abstract stuff in <laughs> philosophy. Yes, he could just 
he could just uh, go into a flight where he would break out of the Latin. You know, they were lecturing in Latin at the time, and he would start accidentally talking in French because he's in such a, a state. <laughs> you know, talking about you know the principle of non-contradiction. I mean, whoever whoever got you know. <laughs> right. But there are there are stories about his lecture style being incredibly captivating, and his spiritual theology class, which was offered. I even think it was offered on Saturdays, actually, from what I remember, um, would fill the huge hall, the biggest hall at the Angelicum, with not only the auditors for the, the class, you know, at the Angelicum, but local lay people who were in Rome and then priests in the Roman diocese um, who just wanted to benefit from wow. it for their own work as, as pastors. Um, so it's sort of two-sided there, you know. People saw him as a conservative of sorts because he came from an era of, it was defensive, um, but on the other hand, he's warmly remembered. Um, sometimes the same people who think that he was a stodgy conservative also recognize he was also, however, not so stodgy. Sure, so. sure, sure. Uh, did, did, so tell me a little about how he plays into the modernist controversy. Uh, how does he work with that? Yeah, so the modernist uh, controversy is at the turn of the century. So we'll just say really like the end of the 19th century into the early early 20th century. Certain questions start to arise in Catholic circles about how to interpret scripture, how much dogma changes, how does philosophy, especially scholastic philosophy, relate to theology. And this ends up uh, leading to an encyclical and then a series of condemnations and then an oath that everybody would have to take in seminaries um, and the priesthood as well against modernism uh, from the period of 1907 to 1910. That was all instituted during mm -hmm. Pope Pius X's papacy. So he would be a young man then. He's just starting to teach. So at this period of his life, you know, he's not being consulted. But actually, his one of his first um, significant works that probably was one of the reasons, along with another book, for him being invited to Rome, uh, was a book that we've translated, actually, at Emmaus. I was the translator for called To Mystic Common Sense. French title was a teeny bit different. Um, but it's actually addressing certain problems about like doctrinal development or dogmatic development, um, as well as some philosophical themes that came up in the modernist crisis. Um, so he's, if during that period, you know, functioning more as a teacher, who's, you know, defending the church's teaching against certain heresies regarding the nature of faith and reason. Yeah, okay. Uh, who were some of his students that we'd all recognize? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's there's a way this can be a softball question at the beginning. We all recognize, of course, Pope St. John Paul II. Right. Uh, who was uh, directed in his uh, theology doctorate, right? John Paul had a, Pope St. John Paul had a, um, philosophy doctorate as well, but his theology doctorate was on uh, faith, uh, the ascent of faith in St. John of the Cross. And so Garrigou was his director. He was really influential on the, the philosopher Jacques Maritain. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if your listeners know of a figure who, who is a little bit more progressive later on, um, Yves Congar, mm -hmm. the French Dominican, he actually was going to be a diocesan priest, and then he heard Garrigou preaching huh. at uh, an event, and he decided to become a Dominican. Wow. Cool. Um, and then just sort of to name one other figure that's just interesting, you know, once again, to see sort of broad influence, there's another progressive uh, theologian, uh, Marie-Dominique Chenoux, who who was actually the person Garrigou had wanted to be his successor at first. Really? Um, and then there was a whole controversy in the 30s and 40s at the French studio surrounding Father Chenoux. 
there are lots of other, of other Dominicans throughout the French and Toulouse provinces that, that sort of are central to the kind of work I do. People probably wouldn't know their names as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, yeah, we could name others too. Though. Okay, very good. Well, what we'll do is uh, take a break right now. We'll come back on the other side of that break and continue the conversation. Looking uh, at the life, the career of Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, who, uh, again, passed away February 15th, 1964, gives us a good excuse to uh, take a look at his life, but also this remarkable two-volume work on divine revelation. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We're taking a look at the life and the work of Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, who died February 15th, 1964. And with me, uh, looking over his life and work, is Dr. Matthew Minard, who is the translator of a a new uh, publication called On Divine Revelation. It's two volumes published by Emmaus Academic Press. These were This was written by uh, Father Garrigou Lagrange, of course. Uh, how early in the—when in the 20th century did he write this particular work on divine revelation? Yeah, he—the uh, first edition was around 1919, I believe, okay. a little bit earlier than that. He updated it you know, a bit over the years. Technically, he did even make, I think, updates up till the fifth edition in 1950. It was huge, so he wasn't going to touch the, the the book, you know, yeah. start making updates too much. It's just going to be too much, you know, to be too involved. So, like, the big backbone of it is from his first eight or nine years of teaching, and then just bits here and there as he updated things up through about, I think, 43 or 44. It's, it's the translations based on the final edition from 1950. 1950. When a work of this size is published and it represents his teaching, you know, over a long period of time, how is back in 1950? How is a book like this received? Who buys it? Who who reviews it? Uh, how is it regarded? Yeah, the book would be used as a teaching text. In seminary, I mean, experts would use it as well. Be used most often in uh, fundamental theology course sequence in seminary, and it's written though in such a way that it can be taught kind of at two levels. Mm-hmm. There's this is a standard thing in Roman textbooks at the time was to to use smaller type in the body to flag off advanced topics. So okay. that if you're teaching it, or even if you're reading it and you're not an expert, you can read the body of it, and it has a, a kind of easier textbook format sure. than that larger type. Um, and so it would would have been used. It came right out of his his teaching, and he must have had a sense for for what content he could use for beginners. And then he basically says, if you want to revisit this class at the end of your sequence, use the small text, mm-hmm. you know, for more advanced students then. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a manual exactly. Okay. This is a, a term of trade. Uh, manual just technically means the book fits in your hand. Um, that was a normal thing in Roman Catholic formation for a long time, to have summary textbooks uh, for uh, formation in seminary especially. It's something like a manual. It's, some, it's a little bit different, too, because it's not just a summary. It has lots of his own speculation and footnotes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like He's very active in it. He's not just regurgitating kind of what the Thomists yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, what I'd like to do is kind of work our way back um, 
to some of the controversies within Thomism and within the church in the 20th century. But let me let me ask a, a question, and then we can kind of look backwards. He died just before the close of the Second Vatican Council. Had he the time, how would he have regarded the documents of Vatican II? Well, it's hard to say exactly, you know, the documents in their final form, right. what he would have thought one way or the other. And I think we should always be very careful in, in that regard. Fair enough. I think the, the doctrinal upheaval would have just been an immense cross for his, his heart, because it would have been it would have been like revisiting the turn of the turn of the century, mm-hmm. his youth. I mean, he really would have, I think, suffered through that. Um, you know, there were themes in the documents um, that you know are different in their way of explaining things, but some that that are in in some ways he was an important exponent of. So the most famous, and I I think people use it a lot, but it's it's quite important is that chapter in Lumen Gentium on um, the universal call universal to holiness. Universal call to holiness, yeah. He yeah. was a huge proponent. You could even say he was he was a proponent of the universal call to mysticism because he was so involved with the, the promoting of Carmelite spirituality. He really, throughout his life, was he fighting parties who, who said that you know, kind of, we, we poor lay people, you and myself, we're not really called to the mystical life right, you know, because right. we're kind of in an imperfect state. He very much fought against that. Uh, profoundly unpacked how we were all called to to perfection and charity in accord with our state of life and um, to the mystical life as well, because that's what faith, hope, and charity really enable us, um, you know, to, to, to experience if we give ourselves over to God's action in our souls. Um, so, you know, in that regard, that's, you know, very much in a kind of Garaguvian line. Some of the themes I don't even think he would have cared one way or another about, only because he, for instance, didn't write a lot about the nature of the Church. Okay. You know, he just takes that for for granted. Sure. So there's so much of Lumen Gentium, I think, that in some ways that would, he wouldn't have been one way or the other. I, I think that the upheaval would have been just very hard for him, though. Yeah. The the upheaval that followed? Yeah, that followed, yeah. to be clear. That's yeah. what I'm just saying. I mean, it's yeah. not the documents that I'm necessarily talking about there. I'm just, if I had to say something strictly kind of in a somewhat historical mode, trying to think about what he would have sure. done, I, I don't know about the docs, but I, I can say that yeah, just the the state of the church afterwards, um, and I'm not drawing a causal line there. I'm just saying it would have been that would have been difficult for him. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, he's often associated with this uh, controversy regarding the new theology or nouvelle theologia. What? Tell us, give us some a brief outline of this, and then we can go a little deeper into it. Sure. And if, if anyone's interested, Catholic University of America Press is going to have a book that I have coming out uh, on this topic, actually, with Dr. John Kerwin. Yeah, it'll be out in March. Um, And if you just search my name in New Bell Theology, it'll come up, actually. That'll give us a good excuse to talk with you again. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be fun. So short form is, right after World War II, right as World War II is going on, but especially right after World War II, there's a big controversy that blows up between um, a group of Jesuits, most of whom, you know, we do know names of, Hans-Lars von Balthasar, Henri de Lubac, um, Gaston Fessard, uh, Jean Danielou, and others. Um, and then the Dominicans, both of the Toulouse province of the Dominicans in France, and then Father Garrigou Lagrange, over certain themes in some works that were being written um, theologically. Mm-hmm. And the Dominican fathers thought that they saw in some of those works elements that reminded them of modernism at the turn of the century. Okay. They were especially actually kind of inflamed by one book in particular, 
that most people, um, this may even be surprising to you, don't don't actually talk about, but it's at the center of their articles um, by a guy named um, Father Henri Boyard. Um, the, he, he at the end of the book he kind of presents a theory of how doctrine or dogma develops, oh, okay. and he basically says that dogmas can really change, you know, in themselves is how he's interpreted wow. at least okay. by the Dominicans. Yeah. So that 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 starts a whole series of articles. I mean, it's it's very crazy. And in the course of two or three years, thirty or forty articles are basically shot back and forth across the bow between all these parties. Hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting because you may. F- I'll let you follow up then. Because yeah. the narrative here is usually a little bit different, um, and I can I can kind of guide you if you want to go ahead. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So the, the the way the way this story comes to me is that this is a, a conflict over nature and grace, and that Henri uh, de Lubac uh, made the the point that um, you could uh, there was a natural desire for a supernatural end. And that uh, called into question um, the, the teachings on grace. So take it from there. Sure, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. There are about, I think, seven out of, I think I counted 70 or 80 pages in Garagu that's that are devoted to that nature and grace question, mm-hmm. and they're not even that devoted to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Card- later Cardinal de Lubach, um I think he told the story a lot, so he told his his portion of what happened. <laughs> sure, sure, and it was there. So it was a kind of question of how to read St. Thomas about nature and grace as the background. It's clear in the text, as my book will shows. Just we were publishing translations of the text with commentary that that it's actually this question of dogmatic development. There was another issue too. Um, the, the Jesuits were publishing new texts of the fathers of the Church, um, and. The Dominicans basically, most of them, had said they're you know, fine volumes, but in the footnotes and in the introductions to those books, it really seemed like the press, the Jesuit press in question, um, and I'm not trying to blame one order or the other, um, that they were really cutting on, uh, denigrating scholastic theology. Okay. You know, basically, okay. we need to have new father, texts of the fathers because the fathers speak to modern man, not like scholasticism, not like... Thomas Aquinas, okay. you know, yeah. who's outmoded. That triggered off the reaction from actually the younger men in Toulouse, uh, was that attitude. It wasn't the, the reading of the Fathers that bothered them at all, it was this this kind of insinuation of the passé-ness, that, you, that, that St. Thomas Aquinas would be passé, um, so, and it's scholasticism. So this, this idea, this, this it's often talked about, that this resourcement movement, uh, was not considered necessarily modernistic, but it it was certain people who were part of it were appearing appearing to denigrate the influence of uh, the the rightness of scholasticism. Uh, Correct, kind of leapfrogging yeah. over the Middle Ages, going back to the fathers. That was the concern. Was just that, yeah. um, and it's very clear in the the, the essays we, we translated that you can see that the Dominicans are not at all against the publishing of the fathers. Right. And they're they're actually much more gentle than the history has portrayed them. That was sort of the motivation of the book was to just let them speak in their own words. Very good. Um, yeah. So l- let me go to the this nature grace thing if we can, and do mm-hmm. do what you can to help us because I know it's, it's sometimes difficult. Um. So, do when when um, De Lubac talks about uh, natural desire for a supernatural end, 
Why is that considered a compromise of teaching on grace? So the basic point, the easiest way to see this is, I, I think, actually this. So if we think about what the human mind, just as, as human, can do, um, it's pretty standard teaching from the First Vatican Council on, but it goes back, way back, even into the Fathers. Human reason by itself can, for example, it can prove that God exists, and it can even, and this is in Garrigo, so I'm kind of telling Garrigo this story here implicitly, it, human reason can, can say, you know, God is, in a sense, supernatural in the, in the way that he's above everything in nature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Kind of negatively, right? We don't know what he is in himself. We can mean heavens. So we can't do that unless he reveals it. Right. But he is, you know, he's supernatural yep. in that sense, that he's above every created nature whatsoever. And even technically, the Dominicans would kind of, over the centuries, continue to get the terminology uh, tighter. They would say, we could desire to know him like that, but we really couldn't say what that is in Mm -hmm. itself, and it really doesn't seem possible by human nature by itself. So, you know, it would be very fitting. It would be like, it would be the most fulfilling thing that could possibly be received. Um, But that's all the further human reason can go. Now, I hear music. Yeah, we'll pick it up from the limitations of human reason on the other side. All right. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Matthew Minard, my guest, he is the translator of this two-volume work on divine revelation uh, by Father Reginald Garigou Lagrange. I'm Al Cresta. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Minard. We are looking at the life and work of uh, the late Father Reginald Garigou Lagrange, who passed away on uh, February 15th of 1964. It, the occasion for our discussion is not just his passing, but the publication by uh, a Mayus academic of a two-volume work of uh, Father Garigou Lagrange called On Divine Revelation. Before the break, we were talking about the controversy uh, surrounding uh, Henri de Lubac's belief that there was a natural desire for a supernatural end, does that simply mean that the unbaptized or or fallen humans can have a hunger for God um, and that they can actually have that hunger fulfilled without any necessary appeal to grace or the sacraments? So so in, in Henri de Lubac, in the end, no. That's not the point he's making. Yeah, you know, okay. The point that Henri de Lubac wants to make is basically that human nature is open and really is fulfilled by our supernatural end, or by the supernatural gift of grace, right? Grace isn't just like a, a block stuck on top of human nature. Right. It fulfills even what human nature is. From creation. Basically, so creation belonging. itself is graced? Well, so creation is ordered to grace, yeah, okay. is maybe a better way to put it. Sure. And he does really strive to, to distinguish them. Um, it was just, you know, the Thomists looked at it, and they saw a position that was akin to other Jesuits actually held that in the, the late Middle Ages, mm-hmm. uh, you know, really the early modern period. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it, it ended up being that the Dominicans just make a little bit harder of a distinction between nature and grace because they want to protect nature, because here's a good example of where this is a problem. Let's say that nature is grace, that nature is nothing more than just the gift of grace. When you fall into mortal sin, you you don't have much left. Yeah. 
And so actually, yeah. you know, classical Protestantism, the idea of absolute depravity, yeah. is an effect in part of getting this, getting this question wrong. Interesting. So I'm aware of that kind of abstract there, so I'm glad you, you know, reeled us in. Yeah. Um, and I might be able to, to guide us in a direction about the book that you might please, be able to tie Please, please do, yeah. Yeah, because the, the book is really actually about how revelation, the revealed truths, which we know by the supernatural gift of faith, how they actually are also eminently reasonable. That's yes. what the book is really in the end about. It's 1,500 yeah. pages across two volumes <laughs> about what's called rational credibility, how human reason can actually consider the, the truths of faith and, and see that they are belief-worthy even by reason, let alone by the gift of grace, right, to show that our belief is eminently rational, not, and then something more than that, infinitely more than that, but it also is completely reasonable. Talk to me about the difference between the supernatural gift of faith and the belief that, oh, these, these, uh, these doctrines kind of make sense, so I believe them on the strength of the argument alone. Sure. Let's imagine. Let's imagine that you you kind of looked at the the worship practices at the liturgy um, at Mass, Divine Liturgy, and you think about how how much that morally improves people. Right? You're kind of a secularist, sure. and you see that, and you see how kind of all of that is very elevating for the human person. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you can say that's. I mean, it bears fruit. Right? It kind of sure. It, it shows its its effects. Right. That's very different than saying that Christ is present, applying His grace to me right now, and making the mystery of redemption really present. Gotcha. To really actually believe that and to, to grasp that supernatural activity of the God-Man, you need to basically have your mind opened up yeah. and lo- illuminated, sometimes, as the Fathers would say. And that's what faith involves. Yeah. That's just one example. We could do this for all the dogmas. Yeah. 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 Very good. Very good. Uh, well said. Uh the um, so when at the time of uh, uh, Father uh, Gergul Grange's death, uh, is he pretty much out of the battle? Uh, and how does he see? Does he think uh, his enemies have won? I mean, how does he perceive the the state of things? By, by the fifties, um, I, I I think he's. Uh, you know, he's sort of he's playing a role at the congregation, what we call the, the Holy Office, the CBS nowadays, or whatever they call it, I guess they changed the name. And he's playing a role there. Uh, he, he's actually sort of withdrawing into some of his uh, beloved topics of spiritual theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually less involved in the, as he goes into the 50s. He is involved at the CBS, or the Holy Office. Yes. Um, and he's involved in some, some controversies with, like, Jacques Maritain and his political thought. But even there, he's, he's very gentle and tries to, to reconcile Maritain, who was never condemned, but it almost got to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the end of his life, you see, by the time he, he retires in 59, his mind is starting to go. Okay. So he, he doesn't really experience those last few, few years openly, you know, kind of engaged with the world. From all accounts, it sounds like he actually was very aware it was happening, and he, he made a, a very beautiful self-offering of that period. Really? Um, yeah, Maritain... Who had, a, who had fights with him in the 1930s, the French philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, in his journals, he, he kind of has the, the entries from when he was angry at Garrigou in the 30s. He said, I'm going to leave these entries as they are, but I, I want to say a couple words about you know, the end of his life and you know, the fact that I basically pray to him as a saint, mm-hmm. um, you know, that he was a, a man who, who was you know, untouched by many of the things of, of the world, and uh, that his last years were 
you know, very much, you know, an offering of, of self. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Um, uh, th- didn't the two of them have controversy or some controversy over uh, political issues? Uh, d- d- was was did did uh, Marathon regard uh, Garigou Lagrange as uh, too favorable towards uh, collaborationists with the Vichy government uh, in Nazi-controlled France? Did that create a yeah, prejudice? Correct. It was it was two things. It started with the the uh, Spanish Civil War. Okay. That you know many and many conservative clerics they backed the the Catholic Party sure. um, against the communists. Yeah. You know um, <laughs> there were a lot of atrocities against clerics. Right. Um, Maritain was not as full throated in that support, um, and so that started their disagreements in the 1930s. Maritain ends up here, like other emigres in the United States um, during World War II, and. Gary Lagrange, like a lot of Catholics, and especially people who are in Rome and distant, mm-hmm. they basically backed um, Maréchal Pétain's um, collaborationist government. You know, because you get into the minds of these people. Pétain was a World War I veteran. He was a Catholic. They had all the effects of the French Republic, which were anti-Catholic. And I'm not justifying their position. Sure. But if you're at one degree removed and you don't see the atrocities going on, yeah. You know, you're in Rome while this is going on in France. It's at least, it's at least understandable that you say some you know, somewhat incorrect things about needing to support the Vichy sure. regime. Um, it's very clear. One thing, you know, I can say now, having spent a lot of time with his, his writings, there's not an ounce of any whiff of anti-Semitism in yeah. him whatsoever. Yeah. I, I even wondered in, in On Divine Revelation, at the end of the book, he compares Christianity very briefly to Emo very briefly, to Islam and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And when he, gets to, when he gets to Judaism, you know, he's not interacting much with post-Christian Judaism. I mean, I'll admit that. But he, all he does is talks about how Judaism, you know, is, is the you know, forerunning of Christianity yeah. in a positive way. Yeah. It's, it's all positive. Yeah. So you don't get any weird things there. He cites the anti-Nazi encyclical approvingly mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that was, you know, read, read in German from the pulpits. But he, you know, he was a conservative, and so they so disliked the liberal government of the turn of the century yeah. that when you got a conservative put in, you know, so many of them, you know, supported that until they didn't. Yeah. You know, this was a thing. A lot of people supported the Vichy regime until they didn't, when they saw what was going on. Sure, sure. How difficult is it to translate a massive theological work like Divine Revelation? It's enough to break your back. Um, <laughs> I would think that's why I ask. It, it was about seven hundred thousand words. It was nearly. It was around seven hundred thousand words. Uh, it was definitely out of love for him. Uh, you know, I, I started this because I read something by him that I thought was beautiful, and I started translating other works. Um, it was a long process. I mean, it was a multi-year. Uh, I had some other projects going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. I spent an entire summer where it was. It felt like every day I was. I was sending chapters back and forth to this wonderful copy editor with the Mayus Academic. You know, we were you know going through things and summarizing our work, and then she was closing the files. And I mean, it was just a <laughs> lot of work. I felt like it never ended. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Tell us how the work is laid out. Give us some idea of the content, its structure, and its content. Sure, yeah, and I wish I wish I were down in my office still, where I'd have it in front of me, but I had to run up because of our technology uh, issues. Oh, okay. To a different section of my house, but that's okay. So the book is laid out in two volumes. Basically, although this doesn't completely match the book structure, um, the first one is is all these sorts of principles about what theology is, first of all, what dogma is, 
uh, what dogmatic development is, and then what human reason's powers are. So there's a lot of kind of philosophical discussion, mm -hmm. critiquing different philosophical errors like naturalism, uh, that nature is completely closed off to the supernatural, or rationalism, human reason is basically the bounds of everything we can know. There's no supernatural faith. And then he gets into some related topics to that that, that were subject to pretty big scholastic controversy. Uh, there's one chapter that's in that section that's, I think, 60,000 words um, oh, wow. that he just traces through this controversy in Thomas, in all of these texts out of Thomas, and then throughout the subsequent history, all the way up past uh, Council of Trent and then into the 1900s. Wow. Um, and then in the second half, after he kind of introduces it by talking about what prophecy and miracles are, and it's very nicely laid out. So you might be, your listener might be thinking, oh, this is so advanced. He, he defines his terms, you know, sort of at the beginning. Everything is laid out in such a way that you can read the definitions and get the main outline and not necessarily have to jump into those details after that. So he talks about what miracles are, what they're, how, how can they prove something, uh, how can they be used, and then he starts marching through how does human reason in all these different ways find itself fulfilled by the gospel message. And so for most of that second volume, that's what he's doing is kind of, I've done my abstract speculation, yeah. now I'm going to go through and show how the gospel fulfills our deepest aspirations. The, go the miracles, um, miracles of you know the, of Christ, of the apostles, etc. Uh, how do those um, support the faith? Yeah. How does the miracle that is the church support faith? It's, it's yeah, it's actually a very wonderful second yeah. section. I, I I found it very spiritually edifying. The second volume in particular. Did he think that it that we needed to work to kind of reinstate or reintroduce? the Christian claim of divine revelation? Did he think that had been so disregarded by modern culture that he had to kind of shoulder the burden of reintroducing it? Well, you know, there were others writing this sort of thing, but he felt it was very necessary to be very clear where the, those boundaries of faith and reason were so that you could really defend, in the end, the supernaturality of faith, right? You, you acknowledge what reason is capable of, and then you show that reason really can be open to the revealed message. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that provides a stable foundation for then theologically appreciating, you know, really the, the mystery and grandeur of faith. Yeah. And that is something that's lost in modernity. Yeah. In, in modern philosophy from the 1500s onward, denigrates reason and actually, it, by doing that, actually denigrates faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very true. So the the next the the upcoming book being published this year. Correct. Okay, very good. Do you have a title for it yet? Oh yeah, something like the Thomistic Response to the New Theology. It's, okay, it's in the catalog and it's supposed to come out in March. But you know how this goes anymore. Like, yeah, we'll say April, I bet. Okay. Um, but it's 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 at the printers. Um, yeah. Well, I look I forward might, to getting it. Please. I can feel Ascension Press. I can feel Ascension Press being uh, worked up at me. I should mention also my book, Made by God, Made for God, um, with Ascension Press, the morality text. So I, give, I us that, give us that name that. again. Made by God, Made for God. Made by, made for God, made, made by God, Made for God. Very good. Yes. I will put that, and we'll make sure it's in our online bookstore, too. Matthew, sure. thanks for making your acquaintance, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Al, very much. Dr. Matthew Minard.